You're listening to Creativity in the Capital, a Solving Sacramento podcast. Hi, I'm Casey Rafter. On this show, we find two artists or creatives in the Sacramento area and pair them together to discuss their successes, their struggles, and how they feel they fit into the Sacramento creative community. The two strangers are provided a list of questions, and off they go. It's a new season of Creativity in the Capital. For our first episode of the season, we've paired Andrew Defy and Tavares Blackman. Tavares Blackman, a.k.a. Black Monster, is a Sacramento talent who's dipped his toes in music, fashion, collages, and curations. His art has been seen digitally and in the real world at Crocker Art Museum, Access Gallery, and on his own website, which tantalizes visitors with vibrant colors and themes. Blackman also teaches artistic methods at Sac State, and has taught at UC Davis, where he earned a master's in fine arts. Andrew Defy is a celebrated local hip-hop artist and self-named guerrilla poet who energetically supports the artistic community in all its forms. In 2020, Defy was granted the title of Sacramento's Poet Laureate. In addition to being the former communications director for Soul Collective, Defy founded performance art crew and support system Zero Forbidden Goals. In 2023, Defy was given a key to the city of Sacramento. The generous folks at KSSU once again open up their doors for Blackman and Defy to meet face-to-face in the quiet studio. They'd been in the same room before, but this was their first chance to sit down for a chat. Hello, I'm Tavares. What's up? I'm Andrew Defy. We've been on panels and discussions and in the same spaces before. But yeah, this is our first time uh, sitting down. How long have you lived in Sacramento? I've been in Sacramento since 2009. I came from San Francisco. And I always tell people Sacramento felt like, you know, in Goldilocks. And it's like, this one's too hot. This one's too cold. I grew up in Manteca, Stockton area. And it was like, there is no arts and culture here. Then I went to San Francisco where it was too much. I was in entertainment at the time and just the drug, sex, and rock and roll of it all was a little wild and ended up in Sacramento and was like, oh, this is great. Sacramento feels like to me a place you can make your own lane and kind of do your own thing. You don't have to follow someone else's path. What about you? I've been in Sacramento my whole life. My family lineage goes back at least to my uh, great-grandparents who immigrated from Sicily. So I have family photos from V Street in the early 1900s, Mm. my grandfather and aunts and grandmother. So I live in the same neighborhood. I just have felt absolutely connected to the vibes of living in a place where people I've been related to have died over the last hundred years. Because of that, I've never really fonded for anywhere else. Mm. And at times it's felt like I would question if there's enough for me here. I've never really wanted to be or go anywhere else. And I've gone places and done stuff to make art. And none of those situations ever made me want to leave where I'm at. I got here 15 years ago about, and I've seen the city change from my vantage point. Has there always been the arts in Sacramento? Have you seen a change in that last like 15 years? What do you think from from when you were growing up to now? I was not into art before 15 years ago. I didn't start really getting into art until 2010 at all. I was in the first year of the pilot film program here at Sac State. Okay. and got together with my wife 
And in that time, you know, I just like bought a guitar and an amp and hella canvas and tattoo kit. Let's just do it, you know. <laughs> so your whole life started. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty started much since life. then. Yeah, like, <laughs> and then we had like a kid right after that. And so me starting painting was probably around 2010 mm-hmm. in my kitchen with my daughter in a car seat mm-hmm. and just kind of build up from there. In the last 15 years, has it changed? I'd say, yeah, it has changed from the new buildings on campus, the new art sculpture lab, access to more classes on campus. All of the pandemic relief funds that were made available to the creative economy through the state government, I've totally benefited from all that. And I feel like I didn't just benefit. I worked hard and I put everything into my business, which is to say, you know, I didn't take any profit. (laughs) You know, I just reinvested 100% of everything I ever earned in in addition to, you know, buying a house and paying bills and stuff. I don't care for much else other than making more work. (laughs) Right. I love being around the world, but this always feels like home. I always tell people if I leave Sacramento, it'll be for an island in the Caribbean. That's the only other place for me is somewhere with sandy beaches and warm water because there is so much opportunity to just create your own, create your own lane. You know, when we started ZFG, you know, I jumped on a few years into Soul Collective starting, but we were able to like, hey, what if we, what if we did this thing? And then we were able to just kind of do it. And I feel like Sacramento's always embraced that for me. This last October, they gave me a key to the city. So it definitely feels like home. I haven't figured out what that key opens. I tried to use it as a parking permit today and it just didn't work. Do you feel like creative folks in your field have what they need to make success a reality? And what would you consider your field? Or is it just the arts as a whole and creativity? No, I mean, I feel like I am an artist, you know, that's how I'm trained. I have a bachelor's degree in film production and a master's in studio art and a master's of fine art in studio art. So I feel like my kind of purview is the wider field of the arts. But interestingly enough, the arts have brought me into other fields like finance and investment and government opportunities to participate with Congress and local government agencies like the Department of financial protection and innovation. I think I forgot what you asked, but <laughs> do you, that was my bio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're getting to know each other here. I'm asking if everyone in that field has what they need to make success a reality. No, not really. They don't. I feel like I'm representing not just the arts, but humanity, culture, society, different things like that, that have connections to state and local governments, nonprofits, board of directors, volunteer opportunities, consultancies, stuff like that, that I participate in. I would say no, as an instructor on campus here at Sac State, I feel like privileged to be able to share things that I've learned. I was a non-traditional student, so I was a little older. I had more life experience. Most of my students are in their 20s, um, so they're coming from a different perspective. I'd say in order to really have what it takes to make it in the arts, you have to be like cutthroat but not in a way that you have to be mean or nasty, but you just have to be willing to do the dirty work. Stay up late, get up early, wash the dishes, cut the grass, feed the kids, and make art every day. I couldn't do that without you know, my wife and my partner, 
who is an alumnus of Sac State and the BFA program here, Elizabeth Cord. Between the two of us, we try to make everything work, but without her, without me, I don't think any of it would be possible. You have to be willing to do the dirty work, uh, whatever that takes, um, in a good way. You know, dirty work is not a crime. It's hard work. And I feel like maybe younger generations aren't wanting to participate in that as much. You know, my inspiration would be someone like, let's say Wayne Tebow. So a millionaire who just continues working. So let's say I become a millionaire and I'll be faced with the situation where I could continue to serve the community and teach students to do what I love. Or I could go to a sandy beach somewhere. Who would be mad either way? Right. My inspiration is by any means you show up because like my kids need me. So, so I can never not have to take, you know, whatever shot I need to take. Yeah. You're also an educator. I think a lot of us have to have another gig. As Poet Laureate, I'm the city's only paid artist on the, on the city's payroll, right? They pay me $3,000 a year. So I do a lot of consulting. I do a lot of graphic design, website stuff, content creation, but there's always had to be something else. So surviving as a full-time artist and creative, I don't know too many people. I know, I know a handful that do it out here, but they definitely struggle. There are definitely months where it's really tight and some of them don't have health care. My daughter needs braces. I work a lot. You know, work never stops, which is kind of cool. I think I learned that from my mom who worked around the clock in all kinds of different ways. I think I've come into contact mostly with folks who pursued professional degrees in art. That kind of association means that those folks, in many cases, went on to teach or have positions at galleries or museums. Whether they have kids or families or not, they're self-sustaining, they're independent, and you know they're promoting and cultivating art in the region. I think it's not just about being an artist. I have the desire to learn stuff. Curiosity is a big part of being, being an artist, artist, you know? Mm. You can't knock someone who makes it by their own means. At 22, I matriculated. Didn't take long for me to decide I wanted to change everything, which meant I had to do something I'd, I'd never really considered doing, which was, like, being responsible. And I don't want you to get me wrong, like, just going to school is not a responsible thing. Like people who make it or do this or that on their own means, that's, it takes a lot of responsibility. For me, I needed more structure. You know, and for folks who can live in the cloud or live on the couch, like, and then one day make it big, that's kind of cool. But for me, it's like, I have to have something concrete, especially now being a dad. I never thought I would be a dad, but when I had the opportunity, I really wanted it. Discipline. Discipline, discipline. So I'm someone who barely graduated from a continuation school, went to junior college for two weeks and was like, I really like my philosophy class, but that's it. And dropped out. I knew I wanted to do words. That was part of my issue in school, among other things. I failed algebra four times because you couldn't tell me that I needed it because I was going to be a writer. You know, so I've gone on to like work at newspapers and publishing articles because it was always words with me. But I knew even if I wasn't going to go to a traditional schooling route, I was still going to take writing workshops. I was still going to be in poetry workshops, sitting with folks who would 
redline my whole paper and be like, oh, well, actually, you missed the nut graph. And I'm like, excuse me, what is that? You're using vernacular that I don't know. But I think there was always a discipline and a curiosity as to how folks were doing things. Now I'm looking at what has me the most curious is the ways that people are pushing their art because it's so different. You know, I've been doing this for 20 years professionally. God, I sound old when I say that. It's a different world. Like I remember the first record deal that I was ever talking to someone about was like, we'll give you this percentage of your brick and mortar and this percentage of your online because nobody was doing numbers online. It was just starting to become a thing. And now you're seeing these artists come out that are breaking without any of this standard format. You don't need a label. All you need is a good social media account that picks up like fire. And then all of a sudden, like you can, you can be out there doing what you used to need a label for. Um, and some of these Gen Z kids especially are really figuring out how to work the system because it's curiosity. I totally feel like folks have to do whatever it takes within legal business me. For me, organizing my work and uh, activity into like a corporate structure as I've done, it's just totally been necessary. It would not have happened without the pandemic. I probably wouldn't have even made the music I've made now without the pandemic. I think young folks who are wanting to make it in the arts, like you totally can do it. You just have to be prepared to like do a lot of work, you know, which is fun. If <laughs> what about the, the marketing of... part, the uh, branding part, the, I don't all know the parts that aren't stuff. fun to make it a sustainable thing. Like that's the part when I talk to young people about it. It's, it's fun to throw paint around on canvas. It's fun to make beats and write rhymes and perform and be on stage. You got to get your bio right. You got to have a press kit. You got to have a website. I got to hit up schools consistently to say, yo, I've got this program or this performance that I want to bring to you. I've got to research who I'm going to send that to. Like there's so many moving parts of being a working artist that like aren't creating unless you have something on the side. Right. Like if you do have something that's paying the bills, then you get a little more freedom to be just creative with it versus having to be like, oh, I'm dependent on this art to make X amount of dollars. It takes care of my bills. Otherwise, I'm out on the streets. That sounds like gambling to me. And I never <laughs> gamble. What I do is I put my foot down and I walk a straight line. I don't necessarily make money from my art. You know, I make money from my work, which is uh, a part-time lecturer in the CSU system. All the work that I make makes me eligible to be an employee in the CSU, but I don't get paid for that work. I don't get credit for it here. Only thing that matters here is that I care about my students, that I work as hard to be an instructor as I am as good an artist. I feel that's a good thing. Not to say I don't make anything from art. I make nominal m monies, 1099s, grants, business loans, $5 every other month from uh, SoundCloud. <laughs> that doesn't sustain me. That might just kind of kickstart my next project because it's all going to be reinvested into the organization because I'm my own boss and 
you know, an employee in the CSU, I could do whatever I want with uh, the work I make, which is totally cool. How to make money at art, like you just have to make art long enough and uh, you get good enough and people will want it. I feel like the academic art world and the street art world have always been very separate and almost combative in my experience. So I have this fancy ass title now of Poet Laureate. So I'm allowed into some of these academic spaces. I'm actually a fellow of the American Academy currently. Having the conversations around hip hop and they'll say that hip hop, that's rap, that's not poetry. And they'll try to keep it outside of the academic realm when in reality, something like rap and hip hop culture is probably the most widely universally known form of poetry over the last 50 years. So I feel like those things have always been really combative. The academics trying to keep the street out and the street not really respecting the academics because of that. And having there's like a resentment that builds up between the two. I wish, and it's part of the work that I'm trying to do now to bring everybody into the same space to really respect the hustle of like, you know, that I got friends who been around the world doing rap music that never spent a day in school. I've also got folks who have MFAs who I'm just like, yo, you're making some of the coolest shit I've ever seen. So I think there's, they almost like we're pitted against each other. You know, as someone who is in the system and, and also like, you know, works outside of it. How do you feel about that? I never really got involved in it because I'm not like a art stakeholder. <laughs> I'm a crypto stakeholder. So I think like the interesting thing that's happening now is like uh, the dichotomy between crypto art and trad art or trad fi and DeFi. As far as like uh, graffiti and street art and fine art, I just say like, you know, who cares? Go to art school and just do graffiti or don't go to school and make Flemish paintings. Why not? I care less about things like that because like I have no investment, right? Like I have no investment in the street art, even though everything that I was doing up to the time when I got into grad school was like spray paint and drip, dripping paint and things like that. By the time I graduated, I just felt like I'm multicultural, I'm multifaceted. You know, I experienced duality, experienced like multidimensional time through like improvisational practices. Folks should just like do more work and stop editorializing. Support for Creativity in the Capital comes from Sacramento News and Review, our local alternative news weekly since 1989, and a member of the Solving Sacramento Journalism Collaborative. Read more at sacramento.newsreview.com. Robert Rauschenberg says in Painter's Painting, the abstract expressionists let their drip show. And I think that's funny because it's, it's an aphorism. It's true. But the editorializing of the moment can detract from the work that needs to be done. I don't know what folks think of me because I just do the work and I go home. That's it. I go to the studio. I go to work and I go home. I don't have a, like, a public persona or anything like that. So I just feel like street artists do a lot of work and heavy lifting, like when it comes to the kind of city that I would like to see. And I feel like artists that go to art school do a lot of heavy lifting when it comes to like learning history and carrying on tradition. They're no 
uh, less equally important traditions, I would say. I'm kind of interested in the TradFi and DeFi, though, because crypto art is a new thing that folks aren't really understanding. I have a collection out there called uh, Blackjack Black Monster. Currently, I'm still minting, but I have half of it done, and it's just audio. Interesting. Yeah, the, I'm I'm one of those people who's late to the game on the on the NFTs and the blockchain, um, especially as an artist. So yeah, I'm definitely interested in like how I would get my art onto and into that market. Yeah, I think there's lots of ways to do it. I've been exploring it for uh, since 2021. It's changing so fast. As an artist, as someone who makes stuff, you have to be thoughtful and like compassionate and understanding which is hard when you're fighting for a spot and there's like four spots you know like a thousand people are going for it and you may think you're better maybe you are but the whole point is that someone gets to decide that and you don't this moment has been tempered by excitement and struggle which i feel like good work can come out of that but yeah it's a challenge too yeah i think uh a lot of times, that's like some of the work that I'm talking to young artists about constantly too, is how do you how do you sell your art? How do you put the proposal together for the grant that gets you paid? Because it's not always about whose work is the most impactful. It's about who's on the grant panel. It's about what they're looking for. It's also what's the language you use to talk about your work. Is it well-rounded? Uh, you know, I worked at Soul Collective for 10 years and with the young people, they don't always understand you know, especially if you're black and brown, you're just being and creating is resistance and is social justice. You having a voice is social justice. It doesn't have to be protest art. There's so much that goes into it and understanding how to talk to them about your art. Because we can feel about our art how we want to feel about it. But in order to get the money that they're holding on to and be one of those, like you said, four spots, when they've got 500 people competing for it, is how do you appeal to those folks? How do you appeal to whoever's on the grant panel? And it's all kind of luck of the draw who's even on the grant panel. I would say, you know, you just have to like apply yourself. That's what I did. And I did it when I wasn't even good. I'm good now and I still don't get it all the time. And I have to deal with that. I was applying myself when my work looked like crap. You know, <laughs> uh, but then, you know, I become president of the same gallery, uh, you know, five, seven years later. So, you know, I can't teach people how to improve without learning. The only way you could really learn is by doing. And, you know, when you're in the practice of making, um, it makes uh, all that worthwhile, I feel. How do you feel about... Sacramento as a cultural hub. So you just said that some folks may consider LA or other other places to have more opportunities. But how do you feel of Sacramento? Uh, do you when you think of Sacramento, do you think of like a cultural hub or do you think of like uh, artistic hub or what do you, state capital? Uh, what, do you, what do you think of? And then how do you place your work within that? whatever that, you know, paradigm is. Mm. I think Sacramento's finding its culture. And I think it depends on who you ask. I think there's a little bit of a culture war going on in Sacramento. I think if you ask the politicians for the last eight years, at least, it's been, we're going to be a world-class city. We're going to be the next Austin. We're going to be the next LA. 
where I think if you ask the artists on the ground, we're Sacramento and we're proud of being Sacramento. We're where the Art Hotel happened. We're where the Art Street happened. We're where Black Artist Foundry happened. We've got some amazing arts movements and an amazing art culture on the ground. You know, the other thing I always say about Sacramento, Sacramento loves to tout its diversity. We're the most diverse city in 2005. Well, it is 2024 now. And no matter how diverse it is, Sacramento is hella segregated. So our cultures are in pockets that don't always come across each other. And that's a great thing that art does is bring different cultures together and introduce them and create intersections in poetry and in the hip hop community. There are artists from South Sac who don't come to Midtown. There are artists in Del Paso that don't come to Midtown. So there are these hubs of arts per community or per neighborhood that don't always know about each other. There's a tendency also to be like, well, if you're not in Midtown, then you're not an artist. The art scene is in Midtown. And I don't really buy into that. Where I really put myself in that as Soul Collective, as ZFG, as the Poet Laureate, is someone who works to shift the culture. 2014, you couldn't book a hip-hop show in a lot of these venues, especially in Midtown. The insurance is still super high, like when you do a hip-hop show versus doing a rock show or a country show. And that's because racism is real and alive and well in Sacramento. Does that make the hip-hop show more exclusive? I think it just puts this barrier. Like, I remember being... 20 years old and be like, I want to do a hip hop show in the Bay. And there were 15 different places I could call. And they would say, yeah, absolutely. Come and do it. Where I think the hip hop community had to get really creative. And I think that shifted. Like Again, in, in 2014, you couldn't do it. So we started doing these things called guerrilla art flash mobs. We had a hotline and people could call up to the hotline, find out where we were going to be on Monday night at 8.08 PM. And we went into businesses that wouldn't allow hip-hop or didn't traditionally have hip-hop and we frequented the business so we came in we bought so slice of broadway we bought pizza when we went to lowbrow everybody bought drinks so we showed the community that hip-hop was good for business and that shifted the culture where these businesses start allowing hip-hop they want to know you know you got 50 to 200 people on a Monday night in your venue because of hip hop, then you start thinking business-wise, this is a good investment and that hip hop is good for business. How do you feel about the community and how are you a part of it? As someone who's biracial, how do you feel about the community as a whole and its, and its racism in the arts? As far as like racism in the arts, who knows? You know, it's like, as the black president of Axis Gallery, it felt like maybe they were not necessarily ready for me to be the president. Maybe I was not necessarily ready to be the president. I don't really attribute any of my uh, shortcomings in the arts within the region to my blackness. I would probably say my work is who I am. And it's a big kind of uh, commitment for someone like me who black monster being not just a name, but kind of a, an identity of blackness. I feel like I've been able to work and in my own way, do what I want. I mean, like, I'm still able to make whatever work I want. 
it feels like folks don't do that, but it's not like just here. Like folks don't do that everywhere. You know, if I were to say folks do whatever they want when they make art, maybe I'm not really a big art fan. Folks making work about like their identity or their personal struggles or themselves. You know, I feel like that's always going to be important. You know, whatever this story is. I feel like I've done my part to like write stories about Sacramento because I feel like stories of Sacramento have always disappointed me and I've never been represented within them. Mm. You know, the story of Sacramento and the culture I feel is like being written, we're recording. So I feel like it's still being written. You know, I plan on being a part of that, you know, wider, broader discussion 10, 15 years from now. I'll probably still be here. I've experienced a lot of racism and uh, it always made me a little more chipper, you know, because it's like I know what I'm fighting for. You know, which is my own space. And so I'm never afraid to combat a space that's mine. And that's wherever I am. I feel like folks um, have a lot of opportunity. You know, I feel, unfortunately, I feel like folks maybe worry too much about racism. I've never had a black teacher, but I'm a black professor. I still got here. Still as black as I ever could be. You know, but I talked to some of my contemporaries. They're like, you never had a black teacher? And you're like, how, how'd you do that? And I just say, like, I don't know what the answer is. I guess, like, I guess I'm just black enough to be myself wherever I go. And I feel like folks should really value themselves for who they are, which in most cases is good people. And the racist world that's on the television is not part of my daily life. You know, I like my coworkers. I respect their work. I like the people who I learn from. I only had, like, a few bad teachers, but for the most part, professionally, it's been a nice experience. I feel like I've been able to kind of redeem myself through some past transgressions, and, you know, I cannot knock the opportunity I've had. I feel like anyone in my position, black or white, yellow, brown, whatever, could do the same thing under the same circumstances of given the opportunity. That's kind of, like, relative. But uh, it's not the same for everybody. Not everyone feels the same way. I just want to always do my best which means that no one could tell me that it's not good enough when I know most cases it's better. Mm-hmm. Do you find that any part of your creative work functions as a therapy or a way to like process trauma? You were talking about past transgressions, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, is there a part of your work that's self-healing work? Yeah, totally. So like in my work, I talk about this theme of a uh, heart and a dagger. I'm a survivor of uh, open heart surgery and I experienced a punctured left ventricle when I was 20. And I really had to build up my life from there. Two hour bus rides just to get a doctor's appointment, just to talk to someone and get some meds. You know, I've made that a kind of a major part of my work. I've made the joy I've experienced of being a, a dad and a father, the domestic life, a major part of my work because like I'm grateful and thankful having survived uh, painful, horrible trauma in my life. Mm-hmm. And I've made it a part of my work, but it wasn't like I was like, hey, I'm an artist. I'm going to talk about this bad stuff. It just like organically, there's years, years after the uh, event where I had open heart surgery, I never told anyone that that happened. The first person I told her was a professor some 10 years later after I had my first kid. Art has been able to give me a space to talk about like what's you know, most painful and ironically also the most beautiful part of my life. Realization 
ascension or whatever that could mean, you know, as beautiful as moving on to the next stages of consciousness just by taking out the trash. Anyone could do that. Mm. That's beautiful. It's painful and hard to kind of discover it. And if you have a good teacher, maybe they could help you with that. But yeah, I think I've always used art as a way to express myself. It's always been painful and thoughtful and critical, which is a tough combination, but it's kind of worked for me too. I think that's how we keep ourselves alive and thriving through this art. So I have a medical condition where I was born without stomach muscles, told that I wasn't supposed to live past a certain age. They told me when I was 16 that I wasn't supposed to make it past 15. But often when I go into classrooms and talk to young people, I'll tell them that I wrote myself into existence. My first poems weren't poems. They were just me trying to be and trying to get all of this negativity out of me so it lived on a paper instead of living inside of me. So I relate really heavily when you live through something uh, that is like life-threatening. The ability for art to like help us rebuild ourselves and find just a place to put some of that as well. Also, you said it was 10 years before you really talked to someone about it. This condition was something that I hid from everyone I knew for years, probably a decade at least of making art. But then I ended up writing a poem all about it that like ends on a very high note of like, yo, just keep the faith. Like I'm still here. I've danced across stages all around this country and they said I would never walk. So, you know, I definitely share that same healing yourself through the arts and, and just finding a place to put all of it. That's the biggest thing for me. You know, my father passed away in June and I just now, you know, a couple of weeks ago, wrote the first thing that I've written since his eulogy about him. And it felt like it had just been brewing inside of me and was waiting to come out in an artistic way, in this like really thoughtful way, where before it was just like, yo, I'll just have a day where I would sit and cry, where I'd listen to music that he used to listen to and just miss him and hurt because I knew I needed to get that out. But this process of letting it stew and then finally getting to a place where I'm like, oh, I can pull this out and make something beautiful out of it instead of just having it be hardcore grief and tears, you know? Creativity in the Capital is a production of the Solving Sacramento Journalism Collaborative, hosted by me, Casey Rafter. This episode's intro and outro music is by Celia St. Croix. Celia's music is available on Spotify or any streaming platform. Solving Sacramento is supported by funding from the James Irvine Foundation and Solutions Journalism Network. Our partners include California Groundbreakers, Cap Radio, Outward, Russian American Media, Sacramento Business Journal, Sacramento News and Review, Sacramento Observer, and Univision 19. This conversation has been edited for length, clarity, and flow.